This is Catherine Cruz, and you're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. The latest economic snapshot has Hawaii as the hardest-hit state compared to other places across the country. So what does this mean for landlords and tenants in the commercial real estate world? Here in Hawaii, we turn to Colliers International, which regularly compiles a market survey. Andy Friedlander is one of the co-founders of the commercial real estate firm, and he calls himself a realist. He warns that getting out of the setback could take longer than many want to admit right now. We talked to him on Friday about the factors at play as we all look for recovery from this health and economic crisis. First of all, the the world has changed. We just don't know in what direction it's going. And a lot depends on how long this lasts. That's right. Well, I'm not an optimist, and so I think we're going to last a lot longer than we think it is. And I think people are going to be very cautious as far as moving forward. Prior to this introduction of this virus this year, what was the market looking like? It was very healthy. You know, with Hawaiian Electric taking 200,000 square feet and moving from a lot of different buildings and consolidating, downtown was changing very quickly, as well as the 1132 owned by Douglas Emmett being converted to residential. So the office market was beginning to grow very nicely, and rents were going to go up for landlords. Now that's all changed because there's no, many tenants can't afford to pay rent. Actually, I would say most of the tenants can't afford to pay rent. Even lawyers are not seeing their clients, so they're not billing normally. So everybody across the board is affected. And not only are tenants not paying rent, but how is the building owner going to pay their mortgages? A lot of people forget about the building owners all having mortgages. They think that there are these wealthy guys, and that's not necessarily true. So they have mortgages to pay, too. It's a very, very difficult situation. So they might have thin margins as well. Exactly. So t- talk about these owners, because we, we hear anecdotally that, you know, on the residential side, that the, the landlords of some of these properties, you know, if they're local, they tend to be a little bit more forgiving on, on some of the rent than uh, if the owners are, are from abroad. But uh, I don't know if that's the same picture for uh, commercial. I think many of the local owners, if they've held the property for a long time and haven't refinanced, they probably have more equity in the property and maybe a lower mortgage. To pay. So if that's the case, there might be more flexibility in giving tenants breaks. But again, every owner is different. And so you can't put a blanket on it. But I would say generally, you're correct. Locals are a little bit more flexible and more caring. What do you think is going to happen? I think it's a good question you're asking. <laughs> you don't know the answer. <laughs> well, nobody does. First of all, uh, I've just been reading this morning, the Netherlands and China have already worked out new floor plans for office space, where they're separating people. There's a six-foot separation on everybody, and they have one way to walk in the office building. So it's, it's not people passing each other. It's, it's, a, it's a one-way route. And there's a lot of things like that being done. In Toyota, in Japan, they have uh, cafeterias for food, and now they've set up booths so that everybody has their own plexiglass booth in which to eat in. So it's, it's, things are changing very rapidly. What's, what's going to be the answer for the U.S. in the long run? I think it's too early to tell. People will be working from home in the future, and maybe they'll be taking shifts. Maybe some people will work Monday, Wednesday, and Friday one week, and Tuesday and Thursday the next week from home and change off. So do you think there'll be less of a need for space, office space down the road then? Maybe not, because if they're planning for separation, that takes more space. That's right. I wonder if we'll go back to those uh, bank cubicles. It could well be. Because everything was moving toward open concept offices, right? You're absolutely right. I mean, Hawaiian Airlines was the first large company to do it. 
and since then many other companies have followed. You might have businesses that are rethinking the floor plan in their buildings. I think everybody will. You don't have a crystal ball, but uh, (laughs) how is this uh, gonna work as far as a rent relief? That's a separate subject because many tenants are not gonna be able to pay their rent regardless. As I said, lawyers, all the retailers are out of business, the restaurants are out of business, and the world is changing. So who knows what the next six to eight weeks will bring and how quickly will recovery really occur. I don't think anyone knows that right now. Everybody's making projections, but I'm not sure that they're correct. They're just estimates, people's people's guesstimates on what's gonna happen. But one of the great restaurants in, in, in downtown Honolulu is Murphy's. And a bunch of us just put together some money to keep them in business. Because Don Murphy and his wife Marion give back to the community in so many ways every year. Yes, they do. And so they're they're just terrific, and they need some help. We were talking about downtown, but um, like, what's the snapshot for you know retail, industrial? Industrial is going to be less affected than anybody because people will need to have more warehouse space in the long run, be able to service accounts. But there'll be a different type of servicing. A lot of people will bring in supplies that are needed and they'll be not going, maybe not going to the stores, but there'll be a different type of distribution set up, things that we don't even focus on today. I think warehouses will be in greater demand. Retailers, that was changing before this happened. As you know, so many tenants have gone away and Bed Bath & Beyond went away from Ward and many others. So that's that was changing already. And more and more people are shopping online. My wife is more online than anyone I know. And she gets packages all the time. I'm not an online shopper. So when I go to find something, I go to the store. But I don't do much of that. Right. You like to kick the, t- the tires, but they won't let I, you in to kick the tires these days. You're absolutely right. <laughs> So as we look at this contraction, I guess, if you will, in the retail segment, and then you've got some stores that are that are hurting. You know, we saw Forever 21 pull back on the Waikiki space. Yes. What do you see down the road for retail? Retail is changing. There's been more and more shopping online. The question is, what will happen with rents? Rents were escalating dramatically, and I don't know if that's going to continue to happen. I think that they will flatten versus escalate. And I think many landlords will try to keep their tenants and try to help them get through this period so that they don't have vacancies in the long run. And just in general, I mean, do you see more property owners like Douglas converting more of their office space to housing? I don't. I think that was a one-time situation, and I think it's a good thing. It'll help downtown in many ways. takes less office space, takes office space out of the market, and adds a residential component, which is good for downtown. But I'm concerned about the economy overall. Catherine, you've been here a long time. I've been here, I'm embarrassed to tell you how long. I came here in 1960 when I got out of the Marine Corps, so that's a long time. We have talked about over the years diversifying our economy, and we never have. So we're affected by tourism more than anybody else. They say Las Vegas is affected by tourism, but that's only 30% of their economy. I think we're like 80% of our economy is tourism. So whether or not Alan Oshima can come up with some plans to help diversify the economy is the next question because he'll have some money to spend to be able to do some different things. Any insight on foreign investor money coming into the islands? If borrowers are going to lose their property and lenders make deals, there's always opportunities. So it's too early to tell, 
but certainly that will happen. Well, we're in April already. Any thoughts about when we might see the light at the end of the tunnel, the end of the year? We'll certainly know more then, but at the moment, I can't find the tunnel. I believe we're going to come out of this. I don't know when. And I'm concerned about getting people back to work. And I think it's going to be a lot slower than we think. Are people going to get on airplanes right away? I don't think so. It's travel, business travel is going to be dramatically less than it has been in the past because people have found Zoom to be able to use for business. We're all blessed to be here in Hawaii. If you've got to be stuck somewhere, this is a great place to be stuck. We have a very large property management, Colliers has a very large property management company. And we're working with our tenants and our landlords trying to keep everybody sane and, and working in the same direction. That was a conversation we had with Andy Friedlander of Colliers, contemplating the future of Hawaii's real estate business. It's now time to take a look at the rest of the world. Britain joins countries looking into whether the blood of COVID-19 survivors can be used as a treatment. And good news from Thailand in the wake of its tourist industry collapse. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday, the 20th of April. I'm Jackie Leonard. Millions of people across India have been allowed to return to work as some states ease coronavirus restrictions. Nurses go on strike in Malawi over a lack of personal protective equipment and rare sea turtles return in numbers to Thailand's beaches. Millions of people in India have returned to work as new central government guidelines allow states to ease coronavirus restrictions. In some areas, farmers and other agricultural workers can get back to work amid concerns about food shortages. But none of the restrictions have been lifted in places that are still considered hot spots for the virus, and that includes all major cities. India has registered more than 17,000 cases of the virus and over 550 deaths. Rahul Tandon reports. Trucks and- now going to be allowed to go across states in India so they can take that produce over because, of course, it is the harvest time as well for millions of farmers who have all been struggling, particularly the smaller ones, the poorer farmers. Many prices are beginning to fall because people aren't buying that many products. People are not going out of their houses. So an important day, I think, for the country as India records the highest number of cases in a day. But it's going to take time. India is a large country, 1.3 billion people. It's an important step but it's going to take time to get help to those who really need it. A lack of personal protective equipment for those on the front line of dealing with COVID-19 is causing issues around the world. In Malawi, nurses have gone on strike, as they say they're being exposed to extreme danger unless provided with better PPE. There are 17 known cases in Malawi. In Britain, the Royal College of Nursing says some of its members have felt under pressure working with high-risk patients without the right level of protection. Susan Masters of the RCN says a survey has shown nurses are worried. Half of those responded saying that they have felt under pressure to work with high-risk COVID patients without the level of PPE that is stipulated. Half of them also were saying that they've been asked to treat using a kit that is supposed to be for single use only. Many, many distraught calls from nurses and nursing staff calling us saying that they feel worried about going to work. Passengers from one of the last three cruise ships still sailing have been disembarking in the French port of Marseille after months at sea. The 1700 aboard the Magnifica began their cruise in the Italian port of Genoa on January the 5th, weeks before coronavirus paralysed much of the world. When they reached Australia in early March, the captain decided that for health reasons they should all stay on board. No cases or symptoms have been reported since. 
Britain is to join other countries in looking into whether the blood of COVID-19 survivors can be used to treat people who are ill in hospital with the disease. NHS Blood and Transplant has started asking people who have recovered from the infection to donate their blood so it can begin a trial. Roger Highfield is a member of the UK's Medical Research Council. When a person gets COVID-19, their immune system goes into action and part of this response is they create antibodies which attack the virus and over time these build up in the blood and they can be found in the plasma that's the sort of liquid portion of blood in the infected person when you've taken away the red and the white blood cells so the idea is to take the antibodies that neutralize the virus from survivors of the disease and use them to turbocharge the immune response in seriously ill patients the british actor idris elba and his wife sabrina are launching a un campaign to raise 200 million dollars to help workers in rural areas in Asia, Africa and Latin America affected by the coronavirus. The couple, who have both recovered from the infection, say they're worried about the rural poor being left behind during the pandemic. Speaking from their home in London, Idris Elba called on richer economies to provide aid to prevent needless hunger and suffering. If we learn anything about this world is that what we've learned from COVID is that no man is an island. We're all part of this world. And so if we can help each other forward thinking, that's going to save a lot of lives and, and some livelihoods. The lockdown measures have seen a resurgence in wildlife in many parts of the world. Environmentalists in Thailand say beaches empty of tourists have seen a return of the vulnerable leatherback turtle. There have also been more sightings of sharks, dugongs and dolphins. Jonathan Head reports. The correlation between the roaring success of Thailand's tourist industry and the destruction of its marine environment is already well known. Now, environmentalists are hoping that the collapse of tourism during the COVID-19 crisis will give wildlife a breathing space over a much larger area. This year, endangered leatherback turtles are laying eggs here for the first time in six years. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live weekly discussion on the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, 8 p.m. Thursdays, April 23rd and 30th. pbshawaii.org. What can people do to help be more proactive about their health, reduce the risk of illness, including coronavirus, and reduce their anxiety? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to an integrative physician about his approach to staying healthy during these trying times. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, a company of people dedicated to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands since 1882. Matson.com. 
With the nation waging war on COVID-19, healthcare professionals from all over the country are doing what they can to pitch in. Tanya Gillen, a former Oahu resident, is one of them. She's a registered nurse working on the front lines at Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan. The state, at last check, reports over 31,000 coronavirus cases, the fourth highest in the country. The conversations Russell Subiono spoke with uh, Gillen to get a sense of what working in the midst of the pandemic is like. So they have developed a panel, so a blood work panel, specifically for the COVID virus. That's pretty good indication if somebody has it or not. I mean, but it's really easy to tell almost everybody that was admitted and they're coming on a stretcher from the emergency room. They don't have a mask on at first. I don't think anybody really understood how contagious it was. So, you know, we're dressed in these suits head to toe and we're receiving the patient and they have no idea they're just sick they think maybe they have the flu because nobody really knew and then we're you know washing them down we're doing all these things blood work and hooking them up to the monitor and they're freezing they have a number of 103 104 they're coughing they can't breathe their regular oxygen saturation is above 92 they're in the 80s so they're severely hypoxic And these are people of all ages, right? We're not just talking, you know, the elderly. And some of them are getting delirious. So now they're not even able to follow commands or any instructions. And they're just wanting to leave. And they're not understanding what's going on. They don't know where they are. They don't even know who they are. It's really difficult to manage a lot of the patients as well just because of that. And then, you you know, you're dressed up so you can't just walk around in the hallway freely. It takes you a good five to ten minutes to do everything properly. you got to, you know, wash your hands with the alcohol and then you put on the set of gloves. And then, you know, they want us to wash the gloves with the alcohol, put on the gown. And then, again, you're going to put on another set of gloves and they want you to put the alcohol over those. And you're going to put on your mask and you're going to wash your gloves again with the alcohol and put on a shield and or goggles, whatever you have, and you're going to put on a hairnet, you're going to put on the footies, and you're going to make sure you have all of your supplies that you need, if it's medication or whatever, to go in that room, and then maybe you're going to spend an hour to two hours in there with that one patient and make sure you get everything done. That way you don't have to go back in there for some time unless it's absolutely necessary to limit your exposure. And you're going to do that times if you have three patients or four patients, sometimes up to six patients you have on a regular medical floor. Now ICU, you're going to have a different picture. So you have vented patients and they have every medication you can think of, a whole array of different things going on depending on their underlying medical condition and whatever they need for sedation. We have people on morphine and dilated um, to keep them, keep their pain down, keep them sedated and or we paralyze them with some kind of agent as well. We don't want them pulling out that tube and then they have to have some kind of catheter so that their urine goes into a bag not all over the bed and then a lot of these patients are having such severe issues with their lungs that we're having to put in chest tubes because their lungs are collapsing, then they're bleeding. The virus is changing things in your system. So instead of your white blood cell count going up, it's going down, which is the opposite of normal infection. But we're not really giving antibiotics, we're giving steroids. And then some of the patients need sleds. It's like a dialysis machine. So they get put on that for 24 hours and because their kidneys are shutting down. So they go into complete kidney failure. The virus is creating this problem.
And they don't have to have any history of kidney issues for that to happen. Some people are getting all of it, and some people are getting one and not the other. Maybe they don't really have respiratory issues, but their kidneys failed, so you don't really know. Or some people are having a heart attack, and then you're in this really hypercoagulable state, so you're throwing all these clots everywhere. It's creating chaos in your body all around. That's a picture that I have not heard painted before. What's the approximate amount of doctors and nurses that are treating coronavirus patients there? work at Henry Ford downtown, so Henry Ford main campus in Detroit, and we've essentially turned the entire hospital uh, into a corona treatment center. So everything is for corona. We only have a few departments that remained open minimally. I mean, on the most circumstantial basis that it is necessary. Like if you're having a baby, you need, you still need to be able to go to the hospital if you're high risk. They're trying to encourage people not to come unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, obviously, the NICU for the premature babies and our transplant center. And we still need an area for the neurosurgery patients or stroke, which, you know, it's very interesting when this all came about. Where did all the people go that used to come to the hospital? Because we were full on a regular basis. I mean, there was no lack of patients. And now it seemed they all disappeared, all the stroke patients and all these neuro patients that need surgery or, you know, immediately, they all kind of just disappeared. Or maybe they're affected by the corona. I don't really know, but our whole hospital is essentially for corona. And we have tents. We have a drive-through testing center. The emergency room has preliminary tents before you enter, and then they kind of make it, you know, you make your way through so that way you're not overexposing everybody. Um, We all have a P100 mask to protect ourselves. The amount of doctors and nurses, like our staff has increased even in the critical areas because everybody's doing more overtime. So we're working on my unit. We used to work uh, six people. We now have about 20 people to give you a number, definitely increase the need for Mm -hmm. specialization in in extra hands. What's the general morale of the hospital and what's kind of the general morale of the area? Well, I mean, Detroit has its own culture. So, I mean, people seem to be a little bit frustrated that they can't do what they want to do. And then other people are really scared. But the staff at the hospital... I mean, some people are a little bit frustrated with the supplies. Sometimes we're a little bit short, so we've been using garbage bags on occasion to protect ourselves. But overall, Henry Ford has been doing a really good job of providing supplies. They bought us these. They're like a helmet, essentially, and it has a face shield that goes down, almost like if you're going into a riot, looks like that. And then they bought us P100 masks. So those are the ones that you can have the removable filters and you can reuse the mask it's made of some kind of rubber material so those are much better than the n95s that they're providing they don't filter n95s don't filter out everything right i mean we're doing pretty good everybody's kind of pitching in and, and really giving it their all and making sure that the patients are are getting you know getting the right care we're all just a team that's good to hear is there anything hawaii healthcare workers or listeners here in hawaii should know Living in Hawaii and understanding the culture there, and I mean, it's a very transient place, especially on Oahu, right? There's lots of people coming and going, lots of visitors and military personnel, and 
very social environment. You know, we're at the beach, we're, we're hanging out outside the park, whatever you're doing, you know, you're having a cookout. Just be mindful of your encounters with people, where you're going, you know, bring sanitizer if you have to go out. You know, you don't know where people have been and who they've come in contact to. I think that's kind of what this virus is showing us. Just be really mindful of all the sanitary stuff that you would normally do. Like if you went to the store and you wash your fruits and vegetables, you know, wipe down the containers with hot water. Like it's the heat that melts the virus. It's like a fat-soluble virus, so it will melt. That's why 65% alcohol or bleach, it'll, it'll dissolve it. And I think practicing the social distancing is definitely working. We shouldn't just all, we should not ignore that. I think that Hawaii has a unique opportunity in that they are segregated from the rest of continental USA and they should definitely use that to their advantage and protect themselves because there are so many people that want to come there and they probably will once it's reopened. So I think they should just be really mindful and careful. That was former Oahu resident Tanya Gillen talking to the conversations of Russell Subiono. Gillen is a registered nurse working directly with COVID-19 patients at Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital located in Wayne County. It's the area in the state hardest hit, reporting nearly 14,000 cases and nearly 1,200 deaths due to the coronavirus. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from American Savings Bank, committed to the community and its well-being, dedicated to standing with Hawaii's families. ASBHawaii.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of Hawaii Public Radio, expressing my appreciation to everyone in our family of supporters, almost 15,000 strong, for making the station's work possible. Your loyalty and generosity helps us bring you the news and information programs that you rely on and the music that you love, especially at times like these when you need it the most. Your support benefits the entire community. So on behalf of all of us, mahalo. Honolulu Civil Beat brings us our reality check today. Chad Blair's here to tell us how the Hawaii Department of Health is tracing the path of COVID-19 one name at a time. Good morning, Chad. <laughs> uh, good morning, Catherine. Happy Aloha Monday. Yes, and you know the story that we're talking about. You and I have done many stories on the dengue outbreak and, and mm. how intense the process is to track people down. And that's what this story is about. Right. It's called Contact Tracing. It's from our reporter, Eleni Gill, who handles, uh, among other things, uh, health is her priority. And the story that we have up today, the lead story, she begins with talking about how the Department of Health has about 70 volunteers, people with health experience background, and they go to these conference rooms and these cubicles. Of course, they're socially distanced from each other. And what do they do? They start making calls to people who have tested positive uh, for COVID-19. And the reason is, is they want to know, who else did you come in contact with? And that could lead to more calls, as many as, well, 30, maybe even 50 and particularly, are there people that these patients who tested positive, did, they spent more than 10 minutes with in close contact, closer than six feet? 
And the belief here from epidemiologists is this is the way that you control the spread. This is the way that you flatten that curve uh, to try and end this virus. Right, because then if you can identify those people, they can go mm. into isolation, into quarantine, right. and then you can prevent it from being passed around. That's the idea. So the, D- the Department of Health gets reports from doctors. The patients themselves, you know, they need to tell their employers who they were exposed to. They need to stay at home. And uh, that's the belief right now. The Department of Health, however, and this is really a big challenge, it's been chronically understaffed. And in this case, Bruce Anderson, the director of the Department of Health, says he wants to double uh, the contact tracing that's in existence right now and to get to people more early. In some cases, it's been several days or longer since someone has been tested before that information gets to the DOH and then they are able to trace that person. Uh, he, He wants to at least another 30 volunteers, maybe more. And it's not just manpower. You're going to need uh, smartphones and laptops. Those are on order as well. So people can work remotely on this. You know, I should add one of the reasons this is so important is, you know, what's been happening at Maui Memorial, Mm -hmm. where there's been a so-called cluster, a few other places in the state. Well, you know, those reports actually came from the media. And I'll give kudos to the Star Advertiser, but we've also reported as well. In other words, the the reports about the spread of the virus, the number of people with cases didn't come from the Department of Health uh, or from Maui Memorial. It came from uh, people who talked to reporters. And that is a, a concern that there may be more of these clusters that need to be reached and discovered. We did see that uh, cluster on the Big Island at right. the McDonald's there. Yeah, the, the Kona area, and that's a, a whole other story that's being examined right now. There's another angle that Eleni uncovered as well. There are some people in the private sector, people involved um, with developing their own ways to use crowdsourcing to get people to voluntarily and confidentially uh, fill out a survey to report, you know, what they're seeing, who they're seeing, and so forth. And this is something that's being done that perhaps could be wedded with the Department of Health to get a better picture of how the whole state looks. Now, right now, there's no coordination between uh, these groups. They include the uh, University of Hawaii, some some private tech guys. But it may be a way to, as I say, paint a bigger picture, picture of what's going on. You know, we can't do what South Korea has done or what Taiwan has done. We have privacy laws that are in place, right? We've got to be very careful about how we trace people. We've got to make sure that you know, that they're, we're not naming names and, and showing pictures of people. But this could be critical to, as we're all talking about, reopening the economy. How can you reopen the economy, get things back to normal when you don't have a grasp of how serious, how widely extended the virus is? You know, and we did talk with Carl Kim, the head of the National Disaster yeah, Preparedness exactly. Training Center. And they had, they had uh, sent out their survey. And then I think Aloha Trace is has picked up some of those questions. So it, it's interesting to see the coordination that's happening, you know, in, in different camps. Right. But they have not coordinated with the Department of Health and they're not looking at making the information public. I mean, right now you already know about how you can at least find out which zip codes have been the most impacted. And it can be frightening for people who find out that their neighborhood happens to be in that area. Yeah, like you I and me. Much, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we happen to be near. But again, the, the, the key to this is is maintaining privacy, but having greater coordination uh, between these private uh, interests. Of course, University of Hawaii is not private, but, but Carl Kim is in the story, Aloha Trace. And uh, that is the question that I think Eleni Gill's story raises is, can we work together more as a team? Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to watch and see what happens. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine.
That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read the full story about the health department and its efforts to contract trace, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. They say classical music has the power to heal, to boost creativity, or make you more productive. Some even think it makes you smarter. One thing's for certain, classical music makes you feel good and it's waiting for you on HPR2, your home for classical music. Catch performances right here in the islands and from around the world. Tune in on your radio, our mobile app, or on your smart speaker. It was a story by Denby Fawcett in Civil Beat last week that caught our attention. It was a shout out to thank Hawaii healthcare workers battling on the front lines of this crisis. Oahu's Andrea Jepson said her book club friends decided they would get something going to say mahalo to those very essential workers. So three Fridays ago, the Lanikai bookworms got noisy. Jepson says she sounded this. The idea of making a joyful noise as a shout-out a mahalo is starting to catch on. I kept waiting for someone to do something because we do that kind of thing in Hawaii. And I thought, I'll get a note from somebody pretty soon. But I didn't, and I, and our book club met, and we talked about it and decided to do something to get it started on the windward side. And it just took off from there. I used a Tibetan gong, really beautiful sound, and a kazoo. I'm a big kazoo fan. And we did it. We do it for one to two minutes, mostly two minutes. And I alternated between the kazoo and my gong. And the people on the next balcony over did it with a pot and a wooden spoon. And then they started doing it with me in cadence or sound, I guess. I guess rhythm is the right word. And that was kind of fun. And then before you knew it, other groups added conch shells and hula instruments. Here's what it sounded like in some Windward Oahu neighborhoods on Friday night. The idea resonated with Maui's Adrian Kerwin, who had just started an MBA program in Milan, Italy last fall. Kerwin was there until the end of February when that country was in the grips of the COVID curve. By then, the video clips of residents singing arias in deserted alleyways went viral that touched something in people's souls across the globe. Yeah, it was a little traumatic. Luckily for me, I found a route to get home as soon as uh, online classes were announced. And I've been doing remote education actually on Maui since. Because I'm still in so many uh, WhatsApp threads and email threads and other ways of being connected to my classmates, many of whom are still back in Milan or in Italy 
as they might have returned home to their families during this time. I've seen news reports. I've, I've watched videos, first of tragedy and then of hope. Kerwin got to talking with his Honolulu friend, Sam King II, about doing something in the islands. One night, King said he heard his neighbor shout out, Chee-hoo! You know, Chee-hoo! Right? It's just a cheer that you give. And so I actually, honestly, I Googled it because I was like, is this not a Hawaii? Apparently it's a Samoan cheer, or according to the internet, for what is worth. So functionally, it's just a local thing that people do in Hawaii. That You know, it's a cheer that you do when you're watching the show or your friends do something awesome. It's just a way to express excitement. It's almost like a bonsai, right? We want everyone out there to hear it, you know, the healthcare workers. And, and honestly, the healthcare workers and all of us, right, because we're all in this together. Right? It's like we want the healthcare workers to know that they're supported and that we're standing up for them. And it's not, it's not just them, right? It's, it's the people in the grocery stores. I mean, people in retail. It's all of us staying home, right? It's just not easy. And so thanks to Andrea, Adrian, and Sam, who joined forces. If you can dedicate two minutes of your time at 7.30 on Friday nights while we are all in isolation, get outside in your backyard or your front yard and make a joyful noise for all of us. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence to hear about a mission to Mars that is running on time despite the global crisis. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. And as always, we are grateful to turn to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week's Stargazers, all you early risers can catch the planetary ensemble of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in the southern sky before dawn. Also, look out for Venus in the western evening sky. The moon this week continues to wane, and by week's end, we will have a return to nice dark skies. And this week, I understand that despite a lot of things obviously being canceled or postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic, there is actually a pretty big mission you've got news on that's moving forward. Yeah, and it's a surprise to hear that a major NASA mission to Mars is running on time. And not only that, it will be launching this July to make a rendezvous with the Red Planet in January. The goal is to land a large rover called Perseverance on the Martian surface on a multi-year mission to explore the Red Planet. And considering NASA shut down some of their other operations, what makes this one special, Chris? Well, it's all about timing. This launch window is critical to placing the spacecraft on a trajectory that will get it to Mars in around six months. If we miss this window, the next one won't be for about two more years. And in fact, it might cause the mission to be scrubbed altogether. And things like the James Webb Space Telescope, I'm guessing, not such a critical deadline? That's right. James Webb, for example, can be launched any time because it's going to operate at a point in space between the planets. The problem with rover missions is that you have to time them with the orbits of the planets and make sure you can hit a moving target using a finite amount of fuel. Imagine shooting a bullet at a target on the moon and hitting a bullseye while sat in the bed of a moving truck. But not only that, the bullet has to hit in six months at approximately noon on a Sunday. 
that's the kind of operation we're dealing with. Sounds like a good movie, and we know we'll get an update on it from you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Across the globe, there are reports of wildlife moving back to areas that humans have deserted. So it stands to reason the same would happen here in the islands. Ryan Jenkinson is a biologist with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He's also the head of the Protected Species Division under the Division of Aquatic Resources. We reached out to him last week to see how our endangered monk seals, turtles, and seabirds were faring during this pandemic shutdown. As you know, a lot of the parks, county and state, are shut down at this time, so they're pretty empty. So we just want to make sure the animals are doing okay, there's no large events that are going on as far as mortality stuff. This is the pupping time for monk seals, so keeping an eye out for newborn pups on the beaches and just checking on the general health of the animals. Now, I did talk to someone over at NOAA. They pulled back their personnel and their volunteers as well, the folks that used to go out and put the orange netting and the and the blue cones out just to let people yeah. know to keep their distance from the monk yeah. seals and the yeah. turtles. And, and so those guardians aren't there. We're not taking their place. When they will return to doing that work, the volunteer network and the monitoring network in place. But for the state, it's not fortuitous. Nothing about what's going on is fortuitous, but the timing is interesting because we're shifting as a department into more monitoring of these animals. For the last little bit of time, what we've been focused on is outreach activities to help with management of monk seals and turtles and things. So going to fishing tournaments, talking to folks, handing out special types of hooks called circle hooks, which are easier to remove from the animals if they do get hooked. And the program is shifting a little bit now into more in the field, in-person interactions with fishermen and working with the animals in the field. So becoming more a part of this monitoring network. Because we are state, we were able to get permission to put people out there during this period when a lot of the monitoring network can't be out there. So that's the part that's fortuitous right now. So what have you seen as you've gone out in the field, and what are the reports coming back from across the state? There's been no large mortality events, or all of a sudden there's tons of seals showing up just because there's fewer people, is the redistribution of fishing effort is the most interesting thing. So some of the parks and areas that are remote that might usually have people getting in there to fish don't. So there's these large empty areas. And then there's some areas that are actually pretty crowded because people aren't working, unfortunately, right now. So there's lots of time to go fish, which is great to get outside, but there's more people in certain locations. So in some ways, it's set up kind of an interesting natural experiment to see how the animals, like the seals and the turtles, react to human pressure, or if they just go to these same places because there's food there, or hauling out is good, and they're going to go there regardless of whether humans are around. And so far, things have looked pretty much uh, as we would expect, except for a few pups born around on the different islands, which, again, we would expect at this point. Okay, so what should the public do if they see some monk seals, you know, out on a beach? Can they still report those kinds of things? The whole monitoring system and program that no one runs and volunteers and nonprofit organizations 
is still up and running. They just can't be on the beaches in, in many locations at this point. But if you are out there, or someone in the public is out there and sees an animal um, in any situation, they can still call the line. Um, someone will be there to answer, and they will send, they'll call either us or send one of their own people out there. The big change right now is even for, for NOAA or for any volunteers or for us, we can't respond in groups, so we can only come out as single individuals. But if you do see something, still call in. We will go out and check on the animals and do as much as we can. So if there's a situation where there are pups born, we'll put up the um, flagging and everything, just like you had, uh, had seen in the past. How are the turtles doing? Have you had a handle on, on if there's any change there in, in their behavior? We haven't seen any change in behavior that I've gotten reports back yet. So we have people on all of the islands. We've seen a few turtle mortalities, but nothing more than we see on a normal situation. So there hasn't been like tons of turtles showing up or tons of dead turtles showing up. So, so far, things seem to be pretty normal. And what about for our other wildlife, like, you know, out uh, toward Kaina Point, you know, anything with the birds out there? Yeah, Kaina Point's interesting. I've actually gone out there a few times because there are seals and turtles and they, and there's no access to the public at this point. And the most interesting thing is once you get out to the point, the birds have definitely taken over the paths again. So they've moved out of the grasses and the bushes and the shearwaters and albatross and things are cruising up and down the path. And it's really cool to see how quickly they've kind of recolonized those areas. It's really neat. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens when all these orders are lifted and people can get back into those areas. You know, what will the wildlife do? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be great. It, it took a few weeks for even us at the state to get permission to go out there. So we just started looking at some of these sites where there aren't animals. I mean, it does look like it's going to be a few more weeks. So I think we need a little bit more time to see if there are any kind of behavioral changes or distributional changes of the animals based on where people are or are not located. So it will be interesting. But like we talked about before, in in other areas around the world, we see changes in wildlife um, as humans have basically stayed inside and their distribution, including animals ending up in towns and things like that, deer in Japan and um, boars in Italy and all kinds of things. It's interesting. Is it good or bad for the animals? I worry, you yeah. know, when all the fishermen come back or when, you know, more humans come into the area that it'll just affect them. I don't think it's a bad thing. And, you know, when humans come back, it's not a high, it is not a high percentage of the population of either monk seals or sea turtles that are hooked or harassed. It's, they're generally small incidents. Over time, it can add up to be a big thing or if there's specific locations where the animals get concentrated because there's a bunch of fish around, which people are trying to catch also, it can be a problem. But overall, I don't expect any kind of large scale changes to the population of these things because of this. I think more than anything, we'll see changes in where the animals might go. They might use some sites more than others with people not there, but the reality is a monk seal is going to come in to haul out and bask or it's going to come in chasing food regardless of whether people are around. If someone has a fish on a hook, they'll take it. 
if it's available to them at times. But for the most part, I don't, my impression is that the animals are not directly reacting, targeting humans, except in a few cases where that happens, especially where young ones grow up and get habituated to humans and know that they can get food from them. Any other reports that you're getting back out from the neighbor islands? Yeah, the neighbor islands have the same, the same stuff that we're seeing on Oahu with big changes in distribution of fishing pressure. So some real high use beach locations now where there's lots of people fishing. And again, we we haven't really done systematic surveys in the past, meaning we go to the same beach every week for the same amount of time to see how many animals are there. We've relied on the response network in the past where if someone sees an animal or if one's hooked, we go out there. But we haven't done like kind of a systematic thing in the main Hawaiian islands, where most of the monk seals are on the northwest, the northwestern Hawaiian islands, NOAA does have people that go up there and check that every year, so they have good ideas of population trends. Most of the information here is based on people reporting and the response network going out to see what's going on. As far as trends go, I think we'll see more of those as time goes on here. I haven't seen anything yet that I can say definitively. The largest concern right now with monk seals is this toxoplasmosis issue, but there are animals coming down with this, and so it's important for us to be able to check and make sure there's no animals that seem to have symptoms of having this, and that's all we're really trying to do right now. Right, so if anyone in the public sees a monk seal in distress, they they should call that hotline because you folks will be monitoring. 100%, yeah. people come out. I understand that uh, we recently lost Pohaku. She was being nursed back to health at the Marine Mammal Center there on the Big Island, and they were kind of devastated because uh, they were really hoping that they could nurse her back to health. Yeah, I know a lot of time and effort went into that and a lot of great work by people. It's the longest they kept one of these Tuxo seals alive and rehabilitated. So it was a bummer in the context of I think they thought they might have broken through a little bit with treatment. Like any of the animals, it's sad to lose them, but hopefully we learned some stuff for the future. Some good will come out of it. That was a conversation we had last week with DLNR biologist Ryan Jenkinson, who's in charge of the Protected Species Program under the Aquatic Resources Division. If you see one of our endangered monk seals or turtles in distress, you can report it to the NOAA hotline, and someone with NOAA or the state will respond. Well, that's it for today. Tomorrow we open up our phone lines to talk about working from home. How's it been, everybody? Got used to juggling Zoom meetings with your coworkers and the demands of homeschooling your kids and remote learning? What does the survey by Wallet Hub reveal about Hawaii? One of the best or worst places to work remotely? Share your stories, please. Call our talk back line at 808-792-8217. And you can find all our archived stories on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.